APFK. When you turn it on, if you're into it, there's nothing else going to go on. But, uh, yeah, this is just a great place. Loads and loads of stuff. And no matter what you want, it's here. And uh, I, I wouldn't be myself without it. I mean, I, it's, I've got KPFK in my blood. KPFK, listener supported, 99% approved. It's 9 a.m. Saturday mornings on KPFK, and it's the Earl O'Foray Hutchinson Show. From Los Angeles to New York and all around the world, it's blockbuster news and information on the Earl O'Foray Hutchinson Show, 9 a.m. to 11, Saturday mornings on KPFK. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, Femicide, The Missing and Murder Black Girls, a commentary with Lizette Silu, more from Zapatista, January series, Rally in New York City, honor the true anti-war legacy of Reverend Dr. King, changing global hegemony, international highlights focusing on non-NATO and the CELAC conference, all this and more coming up. Good evening, I'm Angela Birdsong. The series of winter storms that slammed Southern California has led to the capture of more than 33 billion gallons of water that can be used as future drinking water in Los Angeles County, the County Public Works Director Mark Pastrella announced this week. That amount of water could supply 816,000 people with water for a year, according to the county. The storm water was captured within the first few months of the winter storm season, according to Australia. Australia further stated, quote, this is a great this is great news for the county and the region. We're working with our water partners to increase the region's capacity to capture, clean, and conserve stormwater runoff while investing in equity in communities through the Safe Clean Water Program, end quote. The program adopted by voters in 2018 through Measure W aims to increase local water supply through capturing stormwater and improving water quality. Approximately 98% of the stormwater runoff collected from the San Gabriel River and Rio Hondo Channel is conserved, according to officials. In the meantime, more than 400,000 people live in parts of Los Angeles County that could be inundated with a foot or more of flood water in a 100-year flood event, the kind that has a 1% chance of occurring in any year, according to a recent study by researchers at University of California, Irvine. And a disproportionate 
share of the most vulnerable residents are black. The analysis found that black residents of L.A. County were 79 percent more likely than white residents to be living at a risk of deep flooding of at least three feet or about waist high. For Latinos, the figure was 17 percent and for Asians, 11 percent. And while the threats posed by California's multi-year drought are far more present than those of a once-a-century flood, the destructive rainstorms that have churned through California over the last three weeks have brought the issue of flooding into dramatic focus. The series of storms, known as atmospheric rivers, swelled many rivers and creeks in the state, flooded fields and highways, caused mudslides, prompted evacuation orders for tens of thousands of people, and as of Tuesday, had caused at least 20 deaths. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. KPFK producer Alicia Vargas continues with the series on Zapatista January. What it is and how does Los Angeles commemorate it? Carla Macal, who, along with her partner Aron, have been organizing this event and their community members in El Monte, shares with me that in El Monte, one of their biggest issues is a city with vast territory, but parts are considered unincorporated in Los Angeles. And thus, this community is often overlooked and under-resourced. Like many under-resourced communities in L.A., this creates food deserts and lack of programs or opportunities for youth. Can you introduce yourself to the Raza radio audience? Tell me what today is all about. Hello, my name is uh, Carla Macal. Today is the anniversary of the Zapatista uprising. So here in El Monte, about, I want to say like 10 years now, we've been coming together every January 1st and just providing education, you know, about Zapatismo and also taking up space. Why do you think it's important to stay in resistance? I think it's important because things are getting worse, unfortunately, right? Like we see that in terms of economically, like people, you know, everything's going up, getting expensive. There's still, you know, wars and wars can also look differently. But I think it's important. Yeah, I think taking up space is our, our resistance. I'm just like a representative. I'm actually, I'm actually from Guatemala. Grew up in East LA and now live in El Monte. And tying it to the Zapatistas and seeing all the children and women that are present here in this uh, community, how do you think that that ties? Because a lot of people say, hey, well, you know, they're fighting their battles there, oh, yeah. but how, how is that related? The Zapatistas would always say like, don't come here, you know, like wherever you are in your like communities, in your trincheras, like do that. Like that's where you have to resist. It is a, a global movement, right? Like their movement is it's in global, it's international. So yeah, wherever you are, you know, in your geographies, I think it's important to create community and, and come together. And I think that's what the Zapatistas are for, right? Like our, the land has, we've been displaced, you know, migrant people here who can't even go back to their motherland. I think it's like, if you can connect to the spirit, to the land, it's also a form of resistance. Folks can support this continued effort and the work of the Zapatistas by following peoples underscore cafe 1312 on Instagram to learn more. And you can also purchase organic delicious coffee grown and cultivated by the Zapatistas in Chiapas. The day began with a blank canvas, a wall by the local business in the area. By the end of the day, artists that had volunteered their time put together a beautiful mural covering every inch where there once wasn't any art. I spoke to Thunder One and and Nativa Warner, David Calvillo, and Maribel about their mural painting and their involvement with the Soledad Enrichment Project. Please introduce yourselves to the Raza Radio audience. 
Hi, my name is David Calvillo. I go by Thunder One. We're a graffiti team. We work with the underserved communities. We teach culture through our art. Today, actually, since it was a Zapatista team, you know, we have to honor the women because everyone always honors Marcos. And a lot of people don't know about Comandanta Ramona. You know, she was one of the first, first in line. Like, you know, she was up front. Uh, animal head, you know, which is the women rule in those communities, which is also another awesome thing. So today we're doing a tribute to her. And I always have my partner here, Maribel. We work together doing intervention work with high-risk youth. And we also involve them in all the murals we do. We have murals from East LA all the way to La Puente. Today we're, we're happy to be here in El Monte, you know, sharing with this community uh, graffiti art. I just felt that uh, it should be highlighted because without us women, there is no revolution. We're very brave women and in these communities as well. It was a good symbol to, to go with the, with the mural. Why do you think it's important to stay in resistance? I do it for the love because it's how we grew up with no resources and, you know, gang banging, tag banging, and we had no resources at all other than, you know, going writing on walls and getting in trouble for it. They made a business out of us back in the early 90s, late 80s, made it a felony to catch graffiti because they knew a lot of us, people of color, brown skin, brothers and sisters, we're doing it, so they made it a crime. Over Anything over 500 in damage was considered a felony. So a lot of us um, caught felonies and all that just for expressing ourselves on walls where that was the only place we had. We didn't have any programs, after-school programs or city programs, county programs. So, you know, we did what we did to survive, and that's what, that's what we're still doing it. And now we use it as a, as a tool to... Um, empower our communities and try to end the school to prison pipeline with the youth. So we bring the youth and also do graffiti with us. We don't say street art because street art, you know, it's it's more like on the hipster side and a lot of street art doesn't have too much meaning. But we do graffiti art. The program we work for is called Soledad Enrichment Action out of East Los Angeles. We're in the Puente Valley, so we're serving the San Gabriel Valley community. There's only two of us. This program started last year after defunding the police. This is where a lot of that money went to. So not only do we do art as therapy, we can't call it therapy, but we do um, in our business because we're not therapists, according to them, you know. But we call it art therapy and we will still, that's part of the resistance as well. Um, and it is therapy and we, we, have, we do have a, our, our, I don't like calling them clients again, but I'm gonna refer to them as clients because that's what they, they have us call them. Um, but they're more of our little brothers and little sisters that we have under our wing that are troubled or have been already busted or arrested or have been incarcerated. Tell me about the entrepreneurial element of your program. Maribel here, my work partner, she does a lot of silk screening entrepreneurship and teaches them how to start their own business. So now that we have the youngsters selling shirts, graffiti-based, hip-hop-based, music influence, and they start their own little business. They don't teach that in school. It's important because it teaches kids how to live doing your own thing, what you love to do, and I work for corporate America, you know? So that's why I feel like it's important to teach these skills so they grow up with that in mind and know that they could work for themselves. The new face of intervention, of gang intervention and prevention, everybody's granito that in it makes a big difference. Shout out to Tongva Nation, to the original people here. Um, yeah, the Tongva people, thank you for allowing us to paint in, in what is this, Hootna? I believe was the village here, Hootna. So thank you, Tongva Nation, for allowing us to squat on your land.
we'll take care of it. And, and Mother Next week, we will bring you the finale of this series on Zapatista January with Alicia Vargas. On January 14th, people from all over the region converged on Times Square in Midtown Manhattan to honor the true anti-war legacy of Dr. King. In the last year of his life, before he was killed by the bullet of an assassin, Dr. King was organizing throughout the country against what he described as the three evils of our society, militarism, racism, and poverty. Kai Prisker of Breakthrough News covered the march in New York City to oppose the NATO-backed war in Ukraine and honor Reverend Dr. King's legacy of fighting against militarism. They want to keep us on the brink of nuclear war because those are the stakes. Those are the stakes of keeping NATO around. Those are the stakes of U.S. imperialism. And those are the stakes of the war in the Ukraine. We have a right to say that if you're going to use our money, do not use it to destroy lives. Use it to build something. As we approach the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, people in the United States are growing tired of what they describe as unconditional political and financial support for Ukraine coming from Washington. U.S. aid to Ukraine now exceeds $100 billion, with the White House sending an additional $4 billion last week. Today, I'm at a demonstration in Times Square where people are calling for an end to the war and for money being spent on bombs and bullets to be redirected to the needs of the people. When the war in Ukraine began, Western countries, under pressure from the United States, immediately pledged support for Ukraine for, quote, as long as it takes. Anyone who questioned the role of NATO in instigating the war, or the wisdom of sending advanced weapons into a war with a nuclear power, was called a Putin apologist. Politicians directed huge sums of money for Ukraine and levied massive sanctions against Russia without considering the consequences. As the war dragged on, governments began to insist that people sacrifice more and more for the Ukrainian war effort, especially as sanctions against Russian oil caused an unanticipated spike in world energy prices. Germany passed laws to ration heat, hot water, and light usage. British households faced an 80% rise in energy bills. When questioned on how the British government would address the energy crisis, then-Prime Minister Boris Johnson said that British people needed to bear those costs because Ukrainians were paying for this war in blood. French President Emmanuel Macron had a similar response, calling higher prices, quote, the price of liberty, as if that's what was motivating Western powers, liberty and not geopolitics. During this time, the United States was facing the highest inflation in four decades. While workers found themselves having to choose between paying their light bill and buying groceries, the Biden administration was emptying out the national treasury for the war. Since the start of the war, the U.S. has committed over $100 billion to Ukraine, a huge portion of which is essentially a direct subsidy to weapons manufacturers who are getting paid to make weapons for Ukraine. These companies are making huge profits off the war, and they don't even try to hide it. On a call with investors, the CEO of Raytheon said, I fully expect we're going to see some benefit from it. To put $100 billion in perspective, consider the fact that $100 billion is more than the budget of both the U.S. Department of Education and the Environmental Protection Agency. And at a time when cities across America are flooding, crucial water supplies and rivers are drying up, and schools are closing their doors due to lack of funding, Americans have just about had it with their government telling them that this war is a greater priority than their own needs. While the United States military has 900 $900 billion to spare on war. We have millions of people 
in the United States of America that do not have a place to lay their head. We have millions of people who can't have a decent job. What moral authority does the United States of America have to go and intervene anywhere in the world? We got enough business to take care of here. The organizers of this march deliberately chose to hold the march on the weekend of Martin Luther King Day. In school, we're taught this sanitized version of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King as this peaceful, nonviolent guy who just wanted everyone to get along, and that when he came on the scene, everyone realized the error of their ways and embraced his message. In reality, Dr. King was a radical who was hated by much of the political establishment for his unwavering position on the Vietnam War. To King, war, poverty, and racism were triple evils that all went together. Racism is used to dehumanize the enemy and garner support for the war, and then every dollar spent on bombs and bullets becomes bread taken out of the mouths of children, homes that go unfinished, and schools that go underfunded. King famously said that the bombs in Vietnam explode at home. They destroy the hopes and possibilities for a decent America. With about half of the people living in this country today in or near poverty in an era of permanent war, the organizers of the march revived this aspect of Dr. King's forgotten legacy. If Dr. King was alive today, he would be disgusted by what he is seeing with the United States. He died a man that was hated because he was an anti-war and a, label, and a, and a labor activist that actually helped the sanitation workers unionize before his death. So Martin Luther King would not be at all enjoying this or even being a part of this. He would actually probably be out on the streets with us or building his own movement to be anti-war because war is disgusting and nothing good comes out of it. So it's a smack in the face to not only Martin Luther King, but to all black people in America to be lying and thinking that this is what Martin Luther King will, will be agreeing with when it's not true. And all of y'all need to be ashamed of yourselves, honestly. <laughs> when Dr. King spoke out against war and racism, he wasn't treated like a hero. He became public enemy number one. Dr. King was constantly surveilled and wiretapped wherever he went. In 1964, the FBI sent an anonymous letter to Dr. King saying that they would reveal compromising information about him if he didn't commit suicide. In a 1968 memo describing the FBI's intention to, quote, prevent the rise of a black messiah who would unify black nationalist movements, King was identified alongside other prominent black revolutionaries like Kwame Ture as possible targets. Today, we look back and see that Dr. King was ahead of his time and that he was on the right side of history and that he was demonized because of it. If Dr. King's legacy teaches us anything, it's that our heroes don't always get seen as such in the moment. Many times they're demonized, they're slandered, they're attacked as agitators and traitors. Challenging the rich and powerful is never easy. But we don't honor Dr. King by doing what's easy and going along with the status quo. We honor him by saying what's on the side of peace and justice, even if it's unpopular. When I came home, I had to really understand why did I feel so bad? Why did I think that what I was being told, thank you for your service, but I didn't like hearing those words? Who did I serve? What did it do? What did it actually, was it in service to? This is the service I'm most proud of. And this is always be proud of what you're doing out here. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Here is a commentary from the Women's Leadership Project with Lizette Silu, standing for being more than just the black girl on the poster. There needs to be justice for missing and murdered black girls. 
My name is Lizette Silu, and I'm 17 years old. Black girls that go missing and or have been murdered are not publicized and looked for as much as white girls. Police and society assume we've run away and refuse to value our lives rather than take action. Being from LA, it's normal to see missing posters with black girls on it on a daily basis. When I'm scrolling on Instagram, I always see a picture of a missing black girl in LA being reposted by my friends. And every day it hits closer and closer to home. A prime example that comes to mind is that of Tioni Theus. Tioni Theus was a young girl the same age as me, who was murdered and thrown onto the 110 freeway off ramp in January 2022. People I go to school with knew her and can speak highly of who she was. But until people on social media started sharing her story, she wasn't published in the news and getting the attention she deserved. But with things like this happening in my community, I can't help but worry if my friends and I will be the next ones on those missing posters or found dead. Every year, tens of thousands of black girls go missing, while four black girls or women are killed nearly every single day in America. We are only 14% of the population, yet we make up over 40% of those who are missing. Now, if this isn't alarming, I don't know what is. According to VPC.org, black women are three times more likely to be murdered than white women. 56% of these homicides are committed by a current or former intimate partner, and 92% of these killings are committed by a black man against a black woman. So not only are we targeted more, but we're also more likely to be murdered by people we trust and people who look like us. This is not acceptable. Young black girls and women die unnecessary deaths daily. We need to make a change immediately before the girl on the poster becomes your friend, sister, or mother. Police need to immediately start searching for these young missing black girls and women instead of waiting and assuming they're dead. And the media needs to spread as much awareness as possible. Without everyone contributing as a whole to decrease these numbers, black femicide will continue to grow for years to come. Just a simple reshare of a missing girl can make all the difference in our communities. Although we cannot depend on the police to have our backs, we can always depend on each other as black girls and women to have our backs and look out for our own welfare. If you or anyone you know has information on the whereabouts of an African-American missing person, please don't hesitate to use the resources listed below. There's the California Department of Justice, whose number is 1-800-222-3463. There's Crime Stoppers, which the number is 1-800-222-8477. My name is Lizette Silu from the Women's Leadership Project, reporting for KPFK Rebel Alliance News. Additional websites Lizette Silu shared off-air are ourblackgirls.com and blackandmissinginc.com. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge I'm trying not to lose my head <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes It makes me wonder how I keep from going under We continue our ongoing coverage of the rising global multipolar order with a look at this week's CELAC Conference in Buenos Aires, Argentina Don DeBar discusses the tug-of-war between the old world and the new that is taking place across the region with Nicaragua-based journalist Stephen Sefton.
This coming week, officials from some 33 permanent members of the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, as well as government officials from around the world, will descend on Buenos Aires, Argentina, for the CELAC conference. Since its launch in December of 2011, CELAC has helped to deepen a dialogue among all of the countries in the region, working on issues of economic and social and cultural development and integration for the 650 million people of Latin America and the Caribbean. It represents the third largest economy in the world, and it's an important component of the world's rising multilateralism. As such, it's also one of the major battlefields between the old order and the new. For more on that, we're going to go to Esteli, Nicaragua, to speak with journalist Stephen Sefton. Well, Stephen, uh, among the other, uh, I guess, spectacles that we're going to see is the return of Brazil uh, in the form of uh, President Lula. And uh, that's one of the things people are talking about. We're also seeing, though, the resurgence of this and some of the other multilateral institutions after seeing a flurry of this activity, beginning perhaps with the presidency of Hugo Chavez in 1999, then the waning of it with the, you know, they hate to use the, that pink tide comes in and comes out metaphoric because it doesn't really work, but the tug of war going on basically between two systems, between left and right, I guess, to characterize it, uh, between the people and elites and between the region and the United States, among others. Yeah, I, I, I agree very much with that, Don. And, and, and I think you can see it both at a, a very high level at an, in, in, in terms of international relations, and you can also see it very, very clearly at a, a, a national level in all kinds of ways. I know, and just look at what's happening in Peru, um, where the impoverished majority there who had high hopes uh, after the election a very uh, narrow win, uh, but he he was uh, el- elected as president Pedro Castillo, and he was a a, 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 a person of very humble or, uh, origin, a teacher, um, very well known for his 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 work as a teacher and his work in the um, National Teachers Union in Peru, and they were hoping for. Um, concrete steps that would improve their improve their lives and what's happened is that um, Castillo was blocked constantly by the um, ruling elite through their their, their political representation um, and he was on he was effectively unable to govern they made it impossible for him to govern or implement his policies um, it, it's an open question whether something similar will happen in Brazil because um, there, uh, Lula da Silva also won with by a, a very narrow margin, an unexpectedly narrow margin against Jair Bolsonaro, and we've just seen um, over the last couple of weeks this um, very somewhat strange insurrection, um, which uh, uh, a lot of people are, are calling a, a, a coup attempt, um, and for the moment, as a result, Lula has. The initiative, but how long will that last? We yeah, don't and know. You, you could have said again, by the way, because this is what we went through in 2016. They removed Dilma yeah, Rousseff from in, office yeah, in a slightly different form. I mean, that, yes, that, that was a, But you're right. Yeah, I and mean, so you, you what what you have in Brazil is 
uh, the same as in Peru, a, ru a very reactionary ruling elite determined to um, continue business as usual as far as they're concerned and keep the impoverished majority in their place um, uh, in, um, on, in living conditions that the that majority are determined to improve. So you have, as you say, as you said at the beginning, we have this tug of war going on between these forces. And, you know, I'm the pink, pink tide people outside Latin America may, may find that metaphor useful, but it, it, it actually explains next to nothing. Right. Um, and so if, if, you, if you look at you, you need to look at what's happening inside these countries to, to understand how complex and how difficult um, the and how intractable in, in, in many countries, as we can see in Peru and Brazil, and also in Argentina, where the SELAC summit will be held. Right. And symbolic of that struggle, that tug of war in Argentina over the last few days has been the case of um, uh, Milagro Sala, uh, a, a very popular grassroots politician in Argentina and she she has been uh, the victim of effectively lawfare um, the uh, abuse of judicial uh, uh, structures for political purposes um, and and as one might expect when her case reached the Supreme Court in Argentina dominated by the right wing um, the, the the same Supreme Court, that has um, uh, uh, worked to to prevent Cristina uh, Fernandez de Kirchner from running as the um, running in the next presidential elections later this year in November. That Supreme Court confirmed the sentence of I think it's a total of 13 years in jail for Milagro Sala on uh, basically very very clearly trumped up charges, and so they that that it, that is an expression of the, and another expression there's lots of support for Milagro Sala but the right wing structures the reactionary structures in Argentina are imposing their will and that's just another uh, sign right. of the way the reactionary elites work across the whole of South America and Central America and the Caribbean too to some extent but that's they're, 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 they're different stories in those two two regions but anyway that, and that, getting back to the CELAC that that struggle, that struggle between the majority demanding a decent life and determined to get it, on the one hand, the reactionary elites determined to hang on to their business as usual, their their, their, their corruption, their control of the, of, of uh, in, their institutional control in their countries. They're they're equally determined to hang on to that. So you have this constant shock of opposing forces. And that is also, in my opinion, I might be wrong about this, um, uh, that's reflected at a very high international level Absolutely. in which CELAC is, is, is likely to be a key player. I think that speculation about whether or not CELAC will be able to survive or not uh, as, a, as a viable body um, is, is probably too pessimistic. And I, I think that all the elements exist uh, for CELAC to thrive, mainly because of the situation in Eurasia and involving China and the countries, for example, of the Eurasian Economic Union. And um, recently, unless I'm mistaken, there was a an actually formal official declaration by the uh, representatives of the um, 
Eurasian uh, Economic Union and the People's Republic of China, that they would both work together um, to merge, in effect, and maybe putting this too simply or too crudely, but in effect what they said was that they were going to merge their infrastructure and investment efforts um, to get the, the best synergies, if I'm allowed to use that word, from um, their respective initiatives. And yeah. so what, what, does that, what, what, what does that represent? That represents the majority world um, turning around and saying, right, we're determined to have a better life. That's right. And that's really the point of all of these, this rising multilateral world. And, and thank you for bringing us to that point. And we'll speak with you again uh, after the conference next week. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, thanks a million, Don. Look forward to it. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. The European Union's energy crisis is set to intensify during 2023. Press TV has the details. On Monday, Eurozone finance ministers marked the occasion of Croatia becoming the 20th member of the Eurogroup. However, Zagreb joins the Euro at a very precarious time for the currency. The big question is, where will the EU get its gas in 2023 and at what price? While high storage levels and lower demand have helped to bring energy prices down, the crisis is certainly not over. The EU insists its move to cut out Russian energy over the war in Ukraine has damaged Moscow. But for the first time, there's an acknowledgement of collateral damage. If you are cutting trade, if you are cutting imports, exports, the bilateral relations with the partner with whom you had a lot of uh, to do with before, then of course there is some negative impact on our side. Experts say the EU has always been overly dependent on imports of gas, oil and raw materials. It's a reality that won't change. They all have to be imported in a way that other regions don't. And that means that the European Union is very vulnerable and it also has to look very carefully where it makes geostrategic alliances. To obtain essential supplies, the EU will turn a blind eye to crimes committed by the likes of Saudi Arabia and Qatar, according to analysts. Despite enormous economic uncertainty at home, the EU is promising more financial aid for Ukraine. We will continue to provide strong military, financial, diplomatic and political support to Ukraine and to the Ukrainian people. Together, the EU and its member states have contributed nearly 50 billion euros. The European Commission has already organised 18 billion euro for Ukraine in 2023. The first tranche is currently being released. The EU will send a further €3 billion Euro to Ukraine on Tuesday. As social inequality grows across the bloc, more and more people are asking, can we really afford to keep doing this? Jerome Hughes, Press TV at the Eurogroup meeting, Brussels. Over 60 years since gaining independence, the Democratic Republic of the Congo continues to feel the effects of a grueling decades-long conflict between former colonial powers and insurgents. RT's Karabolit Latla has more. After six long decades of brutal conflict, countless lives lost and displaced, the war in the DRC's southern mineral-rich province of Katanga is finally over. It's been a harrowing endeavor for its people and 
the region itself. Back in 1960, when time came for Congo to gain her independence, the imperialists and colonizers led by Belgium, the United Kingdom and the United States chose conflict and separatism in Katanga. But why did they do it? They all parroted a line by Western colonizers and imperialists that it was to halt the spread of communism in the world. For in the DRC, that also meant control of major resources at bargain basement prices. And that's how the war in the region began. But for the democratically elected leader of the Congo, Patrice Lumumba, the future of the country was only as one united nation. I informed the public in the Congo and throughout the world that Katanga will not be separated from the Congo. The province of Katanga is an integral part of an independent Congo from the point of view of internal public law and of international law. Just as the province of Antwerp in Belgium will not become independent, neither will the province of Katanga become independent in the Congo. Our great, rich country will remain united in order to play a primary role in the association of free nations of Africa. But Lumumba was beaten to the top and deployed posed by army general known as Mabuto Seseseko. Lamumba, a democratically elected leader of the Congo, was handed to his enemies. He was beaten brutally and tortured by his enemies. It was later revealed that Belgium and the CIA engineered and planned for his downfall and that Lumumba was handed over to his enemies to be tortured and for his body to be doused with acid to further hasten the decomposition. This is according to the US's own National Security Council subgroup. Western pressure made sure that the United Nations Security Council was hamstrung and could not get a consensus on the burning conflict. And Western mercenaries filled the Congo. The United Nations Secretary General at the time, Doug Hammarskjöld, worked hard to change this Western narrative and called for peace. He even called for all foreign forces to leave the Congo. But sadly, he was to lose his life in a mysterious plane crash in 1961, details of which are yet to be known. Largely because the United Kingdom and the United States archives both refused to cooperate with the mission and the investigation has since gone nowhere. The continued non-disclosure of potentially relevant new information in the intelligence, security and defense archives of member states constitutes the biggest barrier to understanding the full truth of the event. The situation in the Congo only kept on getting worse and as public opinion grew against Western powers, it was up to John F. Kennedy to do something about it. He decided to flip and not support the leader in Katanga. Easier said than that. Something that took nearly a year to end it all. The Congo crisis raged on and the country, shattered and devastated by it, still unable to recover. Largely, because of Western greed and an unwillingness to accept that Congo has the right to decide its own destiny and future. It's no secret that the U.S. has sent billions in aid to its Ukrainian proxy forces fighting Russia. But according to reports, up to 70% of that aid isn't making it to the troops. Instead, it's being pocketed by Ukrainian oligarchs, 
This revelation comes amid a shift in media portrayal of Ukraine, which was previously depicted as corrupt and dealing with a neo-Nazi problem, but is now praised as a U.S. proxy force against Russia. Margaret Kimberly, executive editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report, spoke to Lee Camp on the Mint Press News show Behind the Headlines. They would talk about the the problem with the neo-Nazis in Ukraine. They would say that it was a corrupt country. They would say it's the poorest country in Europe. And of course, the most corrupt country would be the poorest, wouldn't it? But all that disappeared down the memory hole. And now it's Ukraine, uh, the, you know, noble country where everybody's an angel. And recently, the president of Nigeria mentioned that Ukrainian arms were ending up in Africa. Well, of course, they're ending up everywhere. Let's talk about the the corruption here, just handing money over to the military industrial complex. I mean, you know, the Raytheons and McDonnell Douglases and the Lockheeds and and so all of them have made a fortune. And the U.S. is actually running out of of weapons. It's so funny. Uh, There's so much projection when they talk about, let's say Russia's running out of missiles. No, it's actually the EU. They're tapped. They don't have anything else to give to Ukraine. Russia's not actually, because they still have an industrial capacity, Aren't they're not running out of anything. So we have lies about that, uh, about the amount of money that's going over there, about what happens to it. The um, arms are ending up everywhere. And the money is the, the non-defense uh, spending. We have no idea who's getting it. Actually, we do have an idea who's getting it. The Ukrainian oligarchs are, are uh, uh, getting it. and. Uh, you know, I tell people who want to quote unquote give to Ukraine, I'm like, if you pay taxes, you already gave. So I, I wouldn't worry <laughs> about it. We have no idea where this money is going. And there are so many needs in this country that are just not mentioned. And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasiliev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Next, Dan Nauman speaks about the changing global hegemony. Global hegemony is changing in 2023. A record-breaking 2.76 million border crossings from Mexico filled homeless shelters to the bursting point in cities nationwide in 2022. This year, the possible end to COVID restrictions could allow tens of thousands of immigrants now subsisting in the cold weather of northern Mexico to surge across the border. Most of those refugees are Central Americans, fleeing cities ravaged by gang warfare and farms devastated by environmental issues associated with corporate expansion and climate change. The U.S. response ranges from the Biden administration's no plan in sight to Arizona Governor Doug Ducey's pledge to cut through a pristine national forest with a four-mile border wall. Millions in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince, are struggling to survive in the world's worst slums due to recent earthquakes and gang violence. The U.N. Security Council Secretary General called it, quote, a nightmarish situation, end quote. In 2021, Border Patrol horsemen herded tens of thousands of Haitians back across the Rio Grande River. The Trump administration imposed more economic sanctions on Cuba, and the Biden administration continued it. 
The result of this brought 250,000 Cuban refugees, which is about 2% of the population, into the U.S. There have been years of U.S.-led economic blockades and at least one Washington-sponsored coup to try to overthrow democratically elected President Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. Something like 6.8 million people have fled to neighboring countries and even further away if they can afford to leave. In 2018, only 100 Venezuelans crossed the southern U.S. border. In 2022, that number was 188,000. The World Bank warned recently millions of people may head north as environmental devastation forces as many as 4 million annually to flee from Mexico and Central America. That being said, there is some hope. The U.S. could at least be moving more towards a positive relationship with its home continent of North America, which includes Canada, Mexico, Central America, and the island nations of the Caribbean. The growth of a multipolar world will slowly replace Washington's goals of global hegemony with alliances like the European Union, Brazil, India, Nigeria, and Turkey. Geopolitically and economically, China dominates much of the globe the way Washington did for the past 75 years. The U.S. share of the global economy declined from a whopping 50% in 1950 to just a 13% in 2021. This relative economic and imperial decline is now undercutting Washington's long-sought goal of maintaining its dominance over Eurasia, the epicenter of global power. Washington has already lost much of its influence in both the greater Middle East and Central Asia as once close allies Afghanistan, Egypt, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey go their own ways. Meanwhile, China has gained significant control over Central Asia and while the Ukraine war has only briefly strengthened the NATO alliance, the role of Russia still remains strong as they retaliate in the economic wars with sanctions of their own. The end of the 20-year war in Afghanistan has forced European leaders to consider what life in NATO might be in this changing world. For the first time in quite a long time, the U.S., Western Europe, and Japan find themselves faced with the realities of changing geopolitical and economic hegemony. Next, we have a reminder about our unhoused community. I went on a freedom ride with Los Angeles Community Action Network on MLK Day. Nothing has changed within the city of Los Angeles, within the county of Los Angeles, as we are entering the season of counting how many unhoused individuals we have within the Los Angeles County. We, with throughout the state of California, we already know that they are doing housing counts everywhere to bring in additional funds, but yet our housing numbers seem to continue to increase. So while we were on this freedom ride on the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Day with LA Can, you will meet Cal who was unhoused in Hollywood, and you will also meet Brother Pancake, 
who is one of the soldiers and advocates for housing with L.A. Can. So with with Kyle, he's going to talk just briefly about what's going on in in his life as he is living unhoused in Hollywood. And Brother Pancake, he's going to come in and speak about what needs to be done in CD 14, Council District number 14, where for the former council member was Jose Wezar. And of course, now the councilman is Kevin DeLeon, where we are trying our best to get them up out of there. So we're going to hear from Brother Pancake first, and we will end with Kyle. I'm Angela Birdsong here at the Freedom Ride for Housing, downtown Los Angeles, before the caravan gets started. I'm here with Pancake, who is one of the members of L.A. Can. Pancake, tell us what your um, relationship is with L.A. Can, and why are we riding for freedom for housing today? Well... We see the problem, the lack of housing in our city. You know, we have the largest houseless population of anywhere in the world, not just in this country, primarily in this country. Man, I love you, man. Um, and I'm a community organizer with LA Can, serve on various committees here. And... Um, you know, it's about house keys, not handcuffs. So oftentimes, folks uh, by LA are uh, decriminalized. And, you know, it's not for us to look down on our houseless population here. And we have enough resources to house our folks, to house Triple H in 2016, 8 to 10,000 units. Our permanent supportive housing unit, where, it, where is it? Where are they? They're falling very much behind. There's only a few projects that have been built that are under construction now. So we're demanding housing. We hear the mayor, you know, state of emergency, boom, 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 boom. They've been declaring a state of emergency, but where is the money? We know our former um, CD14 council member, Jose Wazar, was busted. You know, he's taking kickbacks from developers, bring back Broadway. A lot of those funds that were ear were earmarked, you know, for Skid Row to bring about housing. We see a lot of these vacant properties, um, properties that owned by the city that are dormant, that are dormant, can be developed into housing. And I believe that. I'm very passionate about this, about this work, because. Um, some people even out here have been, you know, been housed that, but really, 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 it's about people. It's about the state of mind, emotional um, ills, you know, um, psychological ills. And if you bring concern about somebody else, you know, take time out, you know, for somebody else. Not just about, not just about me or you, it's about others. So we're passionate about this work, volunteers, you know, out here to make a difference. And in in that change, you know, the bike lanes, the dirty divide, 
how come this area has to be neglected so you go anywhere else throughout LA County but you know this area there are people here and the basic services like uh, restrooms um, and we're living in this pandemic right now um, water fountains green space these are things that have been neglected so we're addressing housing not handcuffed. You see the prison industrial complex, you know, and privatization, um, again, building more prisons, that's not the answer. That's not the answer. You have to reach the spirit of people and help to build them back up again. You know, they're torn down, been stepped on, been forgotten about, being disenfranchised, you know, out of favor. It's about the people. If you can just reach one, help one, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. So that's just a few words that we had today, Miss Bird, Lady, Lady Birdsong. So thank you for the work that you do, Radio Justice, and it's awesome. So we're involved in this work together. Yes. And especially during this COVID pandemic, you know, folks have um, their loss of income, loss of job reduction income, loss and job facing eviction. We look at the moratorium, you know, about to, it's been extended, you know, as far as folks that have um, fallen behind on their rent. So um, this is what we're all about. So that's why we're here. That's why you're here. Now, I just want to ask you one more question, Pancake. Yes. You and I both did housing rights calls. Yes, ma'am. Um, in, towards the end of 2020. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your experience with the housing rights calls. The housing rights? Okay, 2020? Yes, when we were, we're um, doing the calls for Stay uh, House. Stay House um, LA. Well, um, we're in a position to offer uh, tenant rights information to folks, you know, folks whose housing has been impacted by this COVID pandemic. And we offer workshops and rental assistance to folk and legal assistance to folk. Uh, you know, um, it's about reaching out. And, you know, without uh, Stay House LA is a wonderful program. And a lot of folks, they say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But uh, we're going to them. We're connecting with them. And that's what it's all about. So. Thank you so much. Just, that's what it's all about. Yes, it is. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. You okay. know, I like Thank to get to the meat. Right. Not not beat around the bush. You know, just call it for what it is. Right. Jump Trump. Right. Jump Trump. He's going. I'm Angela Birdsong, and you are listening to Conversation Piece. We are downtown L.A., Skid Row, Martin Luther King Jr. Day for the Freedom Ride for Housing. What it is, KPFK, I'm Angela Birdsong, and here is your Rebel Alliance Community Calendar Tips. 100 Black Men of Long Beach and the Long Beach Ministers Alliance invite you to a special screening of Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power, a documentary about a county where 80% of its residents are black, but with zero black voters. 
and the organizers who fought for not just for voting rights, but for black power in Lowndes County, Alabama. Screening is Saturday, January 28th, 5 p.m. at Philadelphia SDA Church, 2640 Santa Fe Avenue in Long Beach. RSVP by Friday, January 27th on Eventbrite. Search for Lowndes County, that's L-O-W-N-L-D-E-S County, and the road to black power. Alzheimer's Association is hosting a free educational webinar on 10 warnings of Alzheimer's, Thursday, January, thir- January 19th, 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Pacific Time, and on Monday, January 23rd, Understanding Alzheimer's and Dementia. 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. Pacific Time. To register, call 800-272-3900 or visit communityresourcefinder.org and click Programs and Events. Join the Compton Initiative for the upcoming volunteer opportunity in the city of Compton, where there will be beautifying homes, schools, and churches alongside neighbors, friends, and family. The next volunteer event is on Saturday, January 21st, and is open to everyone. Check out justdogood.org for details. Free community food giveaway monthly every third Saturday, January 21st from 10 a.m. to noon or until supplies are exhausted. Please share with anyone who may be in need of fresh fruits and vegetables. The address is 1215 East Rubidoux in Wilmington. Check out covenantblessing.org for details. If your child care business has been affected by COVID-19, L.A. County Development Authority is here to help with grants for eligible licensed family child care homes beginning at $15,000. The application process is open until February 14th, 2023. For more information, call 213-600-1908 or email cprgrant at communitypartners.com. Dot org. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions reporting for KPFK Rebel Alliance News. This is Gerald Horn, historian and political activist, and you're listening to KPFK 90.7 in Los Angeles and KPFK.org in cyberspace for news and views on the Pan-African world and the hippest music mix in North America. Tune in to Freedom Now, Saturdays at 11 a.m. KPFK invites you to tune into the Global Village weekdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Bringing you a global mix of hosts, 
seeking the universal soul and making musical connections between our geographical and musical cultures. That's the Global Village, KPFK's flagship music program with new and familiar voices, Monday through Friday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., right here on 90.7 FM and online at kpfk.org.